Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Not a lot of time to chit-chat off the top, aside uh, from welcoming new affiliate KLVT AM 1230 in Lubbock, Texas. Welcome, KLVT. Good to have you aboard. We'll add that to our growing list of affiliates. Uh, coming uh, to Toronto, a courtesy of our friends at Conspiracy Culture, of course, Patrick White and his lovely bride, Kadena, is my next guest. David Hatcher Childress will join George Norrie and uh, Richard Dolan uh, for an evening of uh, Q&A and great discussions on uh, everything from Tesla to conspiracies. You know him from ancient astronauts, of course, David Hatcher Childress who's kind of a real-life Indiana Jones to the many fans of his books. He's a captivating speaker, the author of, or co-author of over 20 books. He's traveled the world several times over, and he's here to tell us about Bolivia and Peru and ancient technology and elongated ancient skulls and what they may have had to do with the Anunnaki and on and on and on. Always a pleasure to have this gentleman on the program. David Hatcher Childress, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hey, good. It's good to be on your show, Richard. David, it seems like whenever I'm uh, in contact with you to get you on the show, you're either going to or coming from Peru and Bolivia. What is it about that area that attracts you so? Well, I love to travel all over the world and everywhere from remote islands in in the Pacific or Indonesia or other places and, and, of course, South America. I was just recently in, at Easter Island, too, and that's the logo of our company, the Easter Island Head. Um, there, there was a flight from Peru to Easter Island for a while. It, it stopped that now, but I was, I got on one of the last flights and, and did that. I love going to, to South America and, and Peru uh, and Bolivia especially. It's really the land of adventure. Uh, with me, we've got a, a magazine that's an adventure travel, archaeology magazine called uh, World Explorer and, and a club that goes along with that called the World Explorers Club. We're all about Indiana Jones kind of adventure, lost cities in the jungle, lost pyramids, ancient treasure, sunken cities, uh, Atlantis, all that kind of stuff. And let me tell you, Peru and, and Bolivia is is just... The land of adventure for that kind of stuff. I I never get tired of going down there, and and I do go down there about once a year or so. Uh, usually flying to Lima and then going up to Cusco. From there, uh, going to Lake Titicaca. Lake Titicaca is the highest navigable lake uh, in the world. It's it's a it's a huge lake and and deep. Uh, approximately half of it's in Bolivia, the other half's in in Peru and. All around that lake are all kinds of weird stuff, giant, strange, uh, megalithic towers and other ruins like Pumapunku and, and Tiwanaku. And then there's uh, all this strange phenomenon that happens around the lake, including uh, a lot of UFO sightings, including UFOs coming in and out of the lake. And uh, even there's stories of some weird sunken city there. And, and I write about all that in, in my new book, um, Ancient technology in in Peru and Bolivia. Have you ever been to Peru, Richard? No, I, I would love to go. I mean, I've se- I've seen so many documentaries over the years on uh, on uh, you know the different civilizations that came out of there, the Incas and so forth. And I I uh, I have a strange attraction to uh, something's pulling me there. I just haven't been able to get on a plane and get there and raise the funds necessary. But you you mentioned Cusco, and I know that one of the things that you talk about in in uh, your new book, ancient technology in Peru and Bolivia. Uh, and, and who knows, you know, UFOs may enter into this conversation at some point. But you talk about the Inca wall sort of in quotations because the this interesting 
um, uh, structure that, uh, that that you write about may actually predate the Incas. But but first of all, tell us what the these Inca walls are, what they look like. Right, in particularly around Cusco and the the gigantic uh, fortress that's above Cusco, uh, which is called Sacsayhuaman. Uh, other sites around there, like Ollantaytambo oh, and, and and Machu Picchu, uh, you have what are what are known as cyclopean walls, and those are uh, granite or sometimes limestone or sandstone walls, uh, basalt too, sometimes where these huge blocks weighing five tons, ten tons, twenty tons, fifty tons, and a hundred tons are perfectly cut and fitted. Often in a, a jigsaw pattern, they're they're locked together in these oddball patterns. Each block is is unique. The blocks themselves are perfectly fitted. You you can't even get a, a razor blade or a, a piece of paper, you know, between these blocks. They're just so perfectly fitted together. They're they're gigantically huge as well. It, it's amazing sight when you see it, and, and tourists are are blown away. Machu Picchu itself is this secret city on top of a mountain. It, too, has uh, very fine walls put together in these jigsaw patterns, uh, also huge blocks of granite and stuff. It's in such a spectacular setting that it's really uh, uh, the top tourist destination in South America, and, and for good reason. But the whole... what's I think uh, the big problem, particularly in Peru and and Bolivia, is is how old they think these walls are. And uh, just like the history of of Canada and, and the United States is is kind of screwed up, where supposedly uh, you know a few Vikings got to Labrador or something, and and then all the American Indians walked across the Bering Straits and populated North and South America and. And suddenly Columbus showed up, 1492, and, and it's kind of like the history. And, and there's no other seafarers or people crossing the ocean, uh, even though Romans and Egyptians and Chinese and and uh, Spanish and the Irish and all these people had actually pretty big boats and were perfectly capable of crossing the Atlantic. You know, none of them ever came here. And you have a similar thing in, in Peru where suddenly, you know, this – this continent is completely isolated. Nobody ever got there. People can't just get into a boat and go somewhere, and that's kind of one of uh, history's conspiracies, in a sense, is that is that uh, oceans are barriers, not highways. And what we're taught in, in school today, which is, in my mind, unscientific, is that, yeah, people can't just get in a boat and, and go somewhere. Uh, no, they, they have to walk everywhere to where they're going thousands of miles of hostile tribes. So in South America particularly, it's kind of messed up where you have these giant megalithic ruins, but they're ascribed to the Incas, who were a very uh, late civilization in South America. In fact, they existed only like 200 uh, to 300 years before the Spanish got there. So when you see these giant buildings in, in around Cusco, at Sacsayhuaman, Ayante Tambo is particularly impressive in my mind. They're saying, uh, the mainstream archaeologists are saying, yeah, these buildings are only 200 years old. And Machu Picchu, too. Uh, well, or 200 years before the Spanish. Uh, now they're about 500 years old. But, um, 
but it, yeah, it doesn't really make sense. And you see these giant buildings, and but that suddenly they were just put up in a very short time too, allegedly by the Incas. And it, and the Incas allegedly uh, didn't know the wheel. They had no knowledge of writing. Uh, their technology was primitive. They didn't have iron tools and things like that. Uh, certainly, they didn't have power saws, uh, uh, giant cranes to, to lift 100-ton blocks of granite and things like that. And yet, these are all the things that you find there in South America, and it's baffling. And it, I mean, it really doesn't make sense. And trying to make sense of it all is is what I do in, in my law cities and ancient technology books. When you look at the, for example, the stairs leading up that were also precisely carved out of these solid pieces of granite, I guess, when you look at the weathering on the stairs, which obviously took place after the cutting took place, I mean, the weathering alone would tend to, to show you that these things are probably on the order of a thousand years rather than, you know, five or six hundred years. Well, right, and and those stairs like that you're talking about uh, in various places, and, and say at Tiwanaku, we, we can really see them. Yeah, they are heavily weathered, and and yeah, a lot of people for a long time must have been walking up and down on these stairs. And that's one of the other enigmas, really, too, is that you have sites, uh, mainly in Bolivia, which are similar and, and in some ways identical to these same Inca, supposed Inca ruins in Peru, but they know that they're not built by the Incas and that they are pre-Inca. And But just exactly how old they are is the big question. And basically in my book, I'm saying that, that those ruins at, at say, Tiwanaku, Pumapunku, they're from around 3000 B.C., really. And there's even um, cuneiform Sumerian writing uh, that's been found there, which which is another thing. That's, that's a giant monkey wrench into the, the history there. In fact, yeah, that, that just can't be there. In fact, um, today there's – it's actually in the, the Gold Museum in, in La Paz. It's called the Fuente Magnable, and it has two forms of Sumerian writing on it. One is cuneiform, and the other is uh, uh, Sumerian hieroglyphics. The, the Sumerians had, had several writing forms. And it's, it's today in the museum, you know, the, basically the National Museum in La Paz. But it can't be there. And mainstream archaeologists, uh, particularly in the United States, I mean, they would say, you know, this, this just can't be there. This, this bowl can't exist. There can't have been Sumerians in... South America 5,000 years ago. This that's, is, this is, you know, that's not, that's not history. That's not our history. Yet it's in that museum. And in fact, you know, Bolivia's kind of a renegade nation of a sort, and I, which I think is a good thing. And, um, I mean, they want to do their own thing. They, they don't bow to pressure that much from the United States. But I can honestly tell you that if that bowl, that Sumerian bowl, had probably been found in Peru, it wouldn't be on display in a museum. I mean, they would cover it up. It's, it's People are controversial. Yeah, it's too controversial, and it and it totally flips the mainstream history on its head. I mean, it it's it's a giant, you know, nuclear bomb to all their theories. I mean, there just can't have been that. And what it's really indicating is that ancient Sumerians probably, at, you know, at some point, came to South America, came to Lake Titicaca and Cusco, built all this stuff. And I mean, some of it was maybe already there. You. There's lots of theories about Atlantis and whatnot in, in South America, and, and those are pretty good theories, in effect. Megalithic building, that how far it goes back to, you know, even 10,000 years. 
but this is the kind of history that's, that's yeah, creates a big cover-up. All they can do right now is ignore it, which they do. But it really shows you how uh, there are cover-ups in history, and people are constantly asking me about... Smithsonian Institution cover-ups uh, that, you know, why Why would, say, universities or Smithsonian or other people cover up certain archaeological finds? And, and I think that's a good question. But there really, it really does go on, and, and we can go into this, why they would do it. Well, let's, let's just take a, let me just jump in here. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. And I do want to pick up on that Sumerian uh, uh, cuneiform uh, found in Bol- Bolivia. I mean, for, for, for those maybe not familiar, this was a, a civilization that, that uh, arose suddenly and unexpectedly unexpectedly uh, in Mesopotamia, uh, you know, which is modern-day Iraq. So, you know, look at the, look at the globe. How did they get from uh, Iraq uh, to uh, Bolivia uh, thousands and thousands of years ago? Back with more of my conversation with David Hatcher Childress, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario. 1-866-740-4740. David Hatcher Childress is with us. His new books uh, are Ancient Technology in Peru and Bolivia, which we're discussing now, and time permitting, we'll, uh, we'll touch upon uh, his other new one, The Enigma of Cranial Deformation. Uh, okay, so the Sumerians suddenly arrive in Bolivia, of all places, uh, from uh, you know Mesopotamia or modern-day Iraq. Uh, so... What would they have been looking for? Why do you think? Do you, I mean, do you speculate? Can you speculate on why they would have come to Bolivia? Yeah, sure. And I and I do in my book. I I pretty much spell it out and and decipher what is going on there as as, as best that I could figure out. And in fact, I, one of the other things that you see around Lake Titicaca and and in the Cusco area, which is a little bit north of of Lake Titicaca, but but not very far. You have these weird towers, and they're megalithic too, with cyclopean uh, construction with granite blocks and things like that. They often have uh, open, to- open uh, tops. Uh, they're, they're, they're kind of strange in the sense that they often kind of taper in or, or out, they're, rather than being perfectly straight up and down. At, at Cusco, there were also some weird towers like this. They were des- destroyed by the Spanish. But around Lake Titicaca, and, and they're more on the west side of the lake, and, and actually in Peru, uh, and, but Tiwanaku's along the south side of the lake, and, and it's in Bolivia. But these weird towers are, are on top of these strange uh, mesas, and they're flat-topped mesas, um, uh, similar to like mesas that would be in, in Arizona or New Mexico or Utah or something. And, and, uh, but as you climb up to these mesas, uh, it's, there are these oddball towers, and and they're very well made, uh, just like the the giant walls and stuff in Cusco or at Tiwanaku, and they can't figure out what they're doing there, and they're in isolated weird places. I mean, they're not near some towns and stuff, and it's it's kind of desolate there, although there are forests, you know, fairly nearby. What mainstream archaeologists have said is that, well, they're barrier, burial towers, and 
the local people there just, I mean, they, they, they themselves live in these kind of crummy mud hut houses, but they decided to build these really excellent, finely cut granite towers and put them, you know, uh, on top of these mesas, you know, so that they could, you know, put some dead bodies in there for a while and, and then they would probably be like naturally mummified or something. And it, it does seem that the local people did use these towers to inter the dead from time to time, but it's, it doesn't seem that that's what the, the original purpose of these towers were. And so that became a mystery. And it was, and it was clear that the same people who are building these towers are the people who, who really built Cuzco, who, who built Sacsayhuaman, and Machu Picchu, all these things. And it's, and it's earlier than the Incas. And that's one of the things with megalithic construction in general. Today, oftentimes when we build things, uh, you, you know, even well-built buildings, they're not made to last for thousands of years. They're, they're made to last for 100 or 200 years, and, and you know, that's a pretty good building. Uh, if you go to Washington, D.C. or Ottawa or something and look at a really nice Capitol building or something, and it, it may be well-constructed and actually made to last for a while. But we have really with our own construction almost like a, a planned obsolescence that's there. And we fully expect to just tear down these buildings at some point and, and rebuild them. But when you're building with these megalithic structures, like in South America or it can be in Egypt, uh, all over the world, they're built to last for thousands of years. And they have. Uh, they're giant blocks of stone perfectly fit together. And you have to ask yourself this, too, and I, I go into all this in the book. Why are people even trying to build like that? I mean, supposedly they're simple people without, you know, power tools, without big cranes or engineering skills and, 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 and machines like we have today, yet we wouldn't even try and build like that. But they're, they're trying to do something that seems so incredibly difficult. I mean, it, it's like they're just trying to do things in the most difficult way possible, including building with 100-ton blocks of granite that they not only have to quarry, move 10 or 20 miles, but then they have to stack them up, perfectly fit them together. It all seems so incredibly tedious. But, you know, I'm maintaining in the book that actually it's done with fairly high technology. They actually have power tools and saws, uh, which sounds pretty incredible, but this gets into the whole vimanas and, and ancient technology, even that the ancients had electricity. Well, here's uh, something that I found fascinating, and, and uh, I know that in, I think in the museum in Cusco, they have a portion of those blocks, and there are these holes bored into this solid granite, and when you shine a flashlight through, it's almost as if the hole has is, is been rifled. It's that sort of smooth and precise. We're not talking about, you know, just a, a crude chisel. How did those holes... Exactly. No, that's right. That's a good point. Yeah, so you have, like, these uh, perfectly round holes that are drilled through, say, basalt, which is extremely hard rock. It looks like it's even been melted. I mean, we're, we're looking at power tools. What's also on these blocks particularly at Tiwanaku and Pumapunku, but also seen at Ayante Tombo and at the Sun Temple in, in Cusco, the, the Cori Concha. That's a mysterious building itself, also very expertly, perfectly made. It was a round building. It held this great treasure. There's a weird tunnel system that goes beneath Cusco and that temple and, and is well known uh, to Cuscanians, uh, the, the Peruvian government actually blocked it off at one point. But they have these keystone cuts. In other words, these cuts that are made into the blocks, and they're uh, a double T, and or they're like an hourglass shape. 
and one side of the tea or the hourglass, uh, there can be circular clamps and things too, is on one giant block, and we're talking, again, 20-ton, 100-ton blocks, uh, which you wouldn't think are going anywhere, but then they're fitted together with these, these clamps, and then molten metals are poured into those, those, the, the clamps themselves, the, the key cuts, as they're called, and then the metal clamp becomes uh, is it hardens in like a double T-shaped or an hourglass shape, and it's on it's on both of the blocks, and it's there to hold these blocks together. Well, that's a really unusual way of fitting uh, giant blocks together, but we find it all over the world. We find it in Egyptian temples. Uh, we find it uh, in in Turkey. We find it in Greece. We even find it in Borobudur in Indonesia and at Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Also the megalithic cities of the Kham people in Vietnam, you have these exact same kind of keystone cuts. And then these metals, there has to be some bronze or some kind of alloy metal is poured into it. So the whole idea even that different people from all over the world, I mean on, on in Asia and in Africa and in South America, that they're building like this with these kind of special keystone cuts and then the metal clamps poured into it, that these people would independently develop such an unusual form of, of fitting unusual blo- these giant blocks together, you know, is incredible. But again, that's what the mainstream archaeologists have to say. They, they're saying, oh, yeah, you know, this is just a temple site. Yeah, the people wanted to drag these giant blocks. Well, they made these keystone cuts. And yes, they had to pour this liquid metal in. But that's part of the the thing. And now we'll get back to these towers, is that what you've got going here, and this is what mainstream archaeologists don't get, is that, yeah, you have basically somewhere, you've got to have these mines and metallurgical plants. So, so not just are you going to have gold mines and tin mines and copper mines and uh, and, and whatnot, but you then have to process the ore, you have to wash it, you have to have kilns that are going to uh, fire up the, the ore, what's going to, you know, then you're going to have the liquid metals come out, whether it's gold, silver, copper, tin, you're going to, to make bronze and other harder metals, you have to mix them and, and make alloys. And so, you know, what we're seeing there, what, 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 what is obviously going on is that somewhere, there had to have been some very sophisticated uh, foundry, uh, you know, a metallurgical plant that is that's got waters washing ores. You would have to have furnaces, uh, you know, and then they have the liquid metals that they're pouring into these giant blocks. And then at Tiwanaku and Pumapunku itself, I mean, there were gigantic buildings there and and huge pyramids, and these pyramids even had artificial lakes on top of them. Uh, it was, you know, it's that's an engineer. Of, that's a lot of effort to go to to bury somebody. I, I don't buy that for a moment. <laughs> well, right. I mean, that's the thing, and, and they're missing that point too. They're looking at Tiwanaku and Pumapunku and and even these towers and stuff. They just see them as these kind of oddball, you know, ceremonial sites and these. And they're basically saying, yeah, these primitive people wanted a place to meet or something and, and do their sun ceremonies or, or sacrifice some, some yamas and alpacas or something. And so they build all these giant things. But, but yeah, what, 
But obviously, you know, it's taking amazing engineering uh, and construction abilities to do this. They had to plan this whole thing out. They're, they're in fact, diverting entire rivers to go into special canals, and then they're pumping the water up to these artificial lakes so, uh, so that they can then bring it down and wash oars. So, in other words, what these towers are, they're part of the metallurgical plants, too, I, I, is what I decided. And they were probably filled with charcoal. They're basically giant kilns. You have, you have to make charcoal for first, first of all. And, and that can be also done in a kiln and a, and a tower. And then once you have the charcoal, then you can make the foundries and the furnaces that are going to melt the ores. And, in fact, what is at the famous Gate of the Sun at Tiwanaku is this sun god, supposedly Viracocha, and he's he's right there on the main part of this gate, which was this monolithic doorway that it's carved out of one giant piece of granite, and they had a bunch of these there. But he's there. He's got a he's got a feathered headdress, just like we picture the American Indian chiefs having his big feathered headdress and stuff. But tears are coming down his his cheeks, and it's very obvious. And they, you can see that he is crying. And, and sometimes they call this the tears of the sun. Well, in the way I have managed to code it in my book, it really is that these are this is this is gold. It's liquid metals. Uh, then the tears of the sun is literally drops of gold or drops of liquid copper and and other metals, which which they would mix together to create bronze and and other alloys. That's that's fascinating. Uh, you know, it's like they had their. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Ancient technology in Peru and Bolivia. David Hatcher Childers is with us. So this smelting operation or whatever you want to call it. I, the other thing I was, I found interesting when you look at the, those, those holes again and in in, that were bored with such precision, uh, and you look at those all lined up in these strange configurations, it almost looks like, I don't know, they were running cables or something through there. What do you think those, what, what were those for? Well, you know, that, I mean, that's a good point. And uh, there's, particularly at the Sun Temple, uh, the Cori Concha in, in Cusco, which is such a strange, strange building and uh, was totally the center of life in the, in the Inca Empire. And, it was, and I maintain that that building was already there. I mean, these buildings are virtually indestructible, although this, the Spanish would try to turn like, like that. They turned it into a church and a monastery, and then they built walls uh, around it. And then later, and it was in uh, 1949, that they had a big earthquake there, and, and some of the Spanish walls fell down, and they could see more of the Spanish, the earlier pre-Spanish walls, which they call Inca, but are actually probably pre-Inca. But some of those walls are just so bizarre, and they have all these drill holes in them. They're very, very carefully articulated, where you have these different door jams and things, and you have, um, yeah, these drilled holes and, and grooves. And, in fact, it looks like, um, particularly this one niche uh, there at the Sun Temple, it looks like some kind of machine or something was at fit into this special kind of niche. It has holes for cables and things to go through it. Um, just ex- and in fact, I've had electrical engineers that I've been with telling me that yeah, this this is looks exactly like uh, you know a, a sort of a 
uh, a case for some kind of machine or electrical device that would have had all kinds of cables running into it. And, of course, they're all gone. And that's part of the thing with the, the Tiwanaku and and all the stuff that you see, particularly in South America and all over the world, is that the metals are gone. Any any piece of metal or cable, even these uh, keystone clamps, the, the metals that are poured in, they're all basically gone. And, and it's, it's, it's what people have, you know, often said, and it's a good criterion. And, you know, I, I make a case in my books that, Ancient civilizations were were more advanced. Uh, that they had electricity. They they had even special sciences where they could, I, I believe, levitate these giant blocks. They had uh, airships, vimanas, much like today. I mean, uh, I don't think that the ancient world had such a consumer society like we have today, with all kinds of different brands to buy and um, kind of, you know all the different choices we have but they had they had electricity um they had power saws they even had some kind of flight these vamanas my, my new book that i'm working on now and and should be out later this summer is a book about vamanas and in fact it's just called vamana and it's all about these ancient airships and uh, super technology that, that was in ancient India and the ancient Indian epics like the Ramayana and right, right. the Mahabharata. And when you read those books, they read like the wildest science fiction. People are flying around in their Vamana airships. They have horrific weapons. They're blasting each other. They're going to other continents and things like that. I mean, it's like some uh, Buck Rogers or, or Flash Gordon movie or something. Well, if you have these huge, like, dirigibles, uh, like these huge zeppelins, I mean, yeah, that would certainly solve a lot of the mystery as to how the Sumerians end up, uh, you know, it's one thing just to cross the ocean, but then when you arrive in South America and you've got to get, you know, up to the top, up to Lake Titicaca and so forth, that's another huge obstacle. So if they did, in fact, uh, move around using the, uh, in zeppelins or dirigibles, you know, problem solved. Uh, I, I want to talk about uh, Sumeria, though, f- for a moment, because uh, m- for many of us, Sumeria came into our uh, sort of a consciousness uh, via people like Zachariah Sitchin and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, um, translating these these Sumerian cuneiforms and their creation legends about meeting up with the Anunnaki. Uh, and we're just about to come to a time a time out here, but when we come back. Uh, maybe we can then now sort of move into uh, the uh, the Anunnaki, the Sumerians, and uh, I know the, the subject of one of your other books, and that is uh, your new books, The Enigma of Cranial Deformation and how all this sort of fits together. Are you good for that? Yeah. All right. David Hatcher Childress is with us. The, again, his new books, Ancient Technology in Peru and Bolivia and The Enigma of Cranial Deformation. More of our conversation right here on The Conspiracy Show right after this. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To talk to Richard, call 416 360 0740. We're back with David Hatcher Childress, Ancient Technology in Peru and Bolivia, and the Enigma of Cranial Deformation. So let's assume uh, you are correct uh, and that it was the Sumerians uh, who built these 
structures, these uh, megalithic uh, structures with such precision that has been attributed by sort of mainstream ortho, ortho, uh, archaeology to the Incas. It was the Sumerians who, who built those. Uh, the the uh, the connection between the Sumerians and the Anunnaki, for those not familiar with that story, can you just give us a bit of that creation legend very quickly as a setup? Well, right. Um, we get the term Anunnaki uh, from the Sumerians, and if it's possibly, it seems that that's uh, uh, similar to what's in the biblical Old Testament, the, the Nephilim. And they were supposedly these giants. They have these elongated heads. Uh, there are statues that come out of Samaria that show these guys. They have what they call coffee bean eyes, kind of a kind of a weird eyes that are they're different than what we're, we're normally used to seeing in statues, say like Egyptian statues or something. Um, and they have these elongated weird heads. Um, according to uh, the Sumerian uh, mythology and stuff, they were these gods who brought civilization and uh, different sciences, including metallurgy and um, you know medical sciences and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, allegedly, they they could fly through the air, had airships. Uh, they also had boats. And in fact, you know, I mean, that's, that's one of the things too. Uh, Easter Island would fit into this too, as well. You know, just trying to wrap your head around what it's like in the ancient world, and and, and particularly them having, in a sense, advanced technologies like like even airships and stuff like that. But look at us today. I mean, we have we've got rockets, we've got satellites, we've got all kinds of different, you know, aircraft of of all kinds of different sort. But yet. Still, most of our cargo and traffic is done by sea and by boat. Um, you know, we we don't airlift everything everywhere, and uh, and most most cargo really does move up and down rivers and and across oceans and on boats, and where we still use boats. So even if the Sumerians had airships, uh, which I maintain they did. Um, you know, they would still have boats, too, uh, and they would have had a huge navies, and, and that's one of the things. I mean, ancient people had that, uh, just like today, and in fact, it's often was said right up to historical times today is that, well, the country with the biggest navy rules the world, and uh, that was, you know, the British, uh, that was one of their songs, how, you know, Britannia ruled the waves, simply because they had the biggest navy, but they weren't, wasn't always like that. There was times when Holland had the world's largest navy. There were times when Spain had the world's largest navy. Today, it's the United States, supposedly, and although it'll be China soon with the world's largest navy. So, but yeah, so you have the boats, and and you and you need you need landing areas, you need landing spots, you need ports, you need island sort of uh, you know places like Easter Island where where people can stop and and get water or something like that. Um, so you're going to have all that. And if the Sumerians were doing all this, and, and I maintain they did, yeah, they're they're literally going all over the world. And and that's part of the thing today is that. Uh, what you were saying, um, how Sumeria is basically the other side of the earth from uh, Bolivia and Lake Titicaca. I mean, they're about as far away as they can get. And yet, it would seem that that was one of their colonies. And, and what they were looking for, just as the Spanish were when they got to South America, they wanted treasure, they wanted metals, they wanted mines. And, and by the way, uh, what fueled uh, the Spanish, um, you know, empire for for uh, several centuries was this giant mountain of silver in in uh, Bolivia known as Potosi. 
And it's, it's literally a mountain of silver. And it became, at the time, in colonial times, it became Bolivia's most important town. Uh, it's not today, but um, but it was all because there was just so much mineral and metal wealth that was there. And it's right near, I mean, it's a little bit south of, of Lake Titicaca. So they were using Lake Titicaca also for, for ships. By the way, Sumerian is an unusual language. It's supposedly the only language that has no... Um, has has no uh, sort of familiar other languages. It's it's unique. There are no other languages like Sumerian. Most other languages are somehow related to you know Indo-European or this language or that language. But Sumerian is is unusual that way. There's, there's so much of the Sumerian culture that I mean, it, here's a, a civilization that just sprang up while the you know everyone else was just climbing out of the trees or living in mud huts. Sumeria had uh, you know, domesticated uh, uh, livestock and 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 developed sophisticated agriculture. They had libraries and 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 so forth, which has led some to this is you know surmise that they had, as according to their sort of creation legend. Uh, communication with this extraterrestrial race, these Anunnaki. Do you do you subscribe to, to, to that theory? Well, I, I certainly open to it, and uh, I mean, there's there's something to that. Uh, the, but now, if these people have electricity, if they have complicated machines, uh, if if they've got airships, they've got beam weapons, they've got plasma cutters. Yeah, they've got high energy devices that melt things. They've got levitation devices that, that somehow make some hundred ton block of granite weightless so they can, you know, move it into place. I mean, it's, it, this is apparently what's going on. I mean, the more you look at it and, and research it as I have, the more convinced I am that this is, this is what it was in the ancient world. And even, yeah, that people are coming from other planets, uh, what that's all about. You have the interesting idea, too, um, and I knew Zachariah Sitchin and, and talked to him a number of times, read all his books, and I, I, I liked him. I, I did not agree with everything he said. But what's interesting, too, and, and this was not what he was interested in, but it's, it's more the direction that, that my research took me, is that our solar system, apparently, there's, there's a thing that was discovered in the mid-1800s by a, a German mathematician named Bode, and he... He had this thing called Bode's Law, and Bode's Law was a mathematical logarithm that goes out from the sun. And what he was, what he kind of came up with was that as you move out from the sun it, out into the solar system, there, that according to his law, there should be a planet at certain spots along as you go out. And as you go farther away from the sun, they would actually get, you know, there would be farther space between the planets and all that. And what's interesting is that Bode's law very much fit our solar system, except for one big uh, difference. And that is that between Mars and Jupiter, there should be a planet. That's what Bode's law said. And But instead of there being a planet between Mars and Jupiter, there's the asteroid belt. Right. The remnants of a planet, perhaps. That's right. So now you have basically the... The evidence for this story that there was another planet in our solar system, but it blew up. And either the people blew up their own planet, and, uh, and maybe we're those guys. Uh, but yeah, there was a time when then our solar system perhaps had three 
um, planets that were inhabitable as in the way we would think inhabited would be like like the Earth and Mars and this other planet. Sure, and, and our, our mutual friend uh, 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 Joseph Farrell, who writes, of course, uh, for uh, Adventures Unlimited, is published by Adventures Unlimited. He's written extensively about that in Cosmic Wars. People can check that book out. That's right, those Cosmic this, Wars. And now all these guys do, just so we can get to the the enigma of cranial deformation, these people with these elongated craniums, and they look like extraterrestrials, but we know that some people just made, you know, little kids this way by, you know, binding the head and stuff. But people were doing this all over the world, and they were doing this in Sumeria, and, and certainly the Anunnaki looked like this. But they've found many, many skulls in, in South America, also in Egypt, also the, in Kurdistan. Uh, even the Chinook Indians in, near Seattle and Vancouver, they did this too. So you have these weird cone heads with these strange elongated heads, and, but they're all over the world too. So, I mean, that's, that's another weird thing. You know, why are people in all these, you know, separate, far-flung places doing this oddball thing? And the mainstream archaeologists are going to say, oh, they all just invented it themselves, separately, you know, without any contact. Just doing this weird thing. And how I does guess, that make sense? Well, I guess they were either emulating the uh, the Anunnaki, who they would have sort of worshipped like gods, I suppose, or maybe some of these skulls that you've seen in the museum in Cusco, they're all on display there, uh, these elongated skulls. Uh, I don't know, perhaps they're, they're hybrids, or the Anunnaki themselves. Well, sure. So you have either people who just naturally look like this with these elongated heads, and they're real, uh, you know, um, although some of the mediums are taking these off display, in fact, because they're so unusual. Uh, but in Peru, particularly, you can see them. And, uh, but, yeah, so either they're doing that, I mean, they, and they look normally this way, or because they were these gods and the elite, that other people wanted to look like them, so they would do this, like, head binding that would create an elongated head and and whatever. And some of these guys, too, they would double their cranium capacity. And in theory, yeah, their brains would be larger than a normal human's as well. Just to, to add sort of more, to further muddy the water, I suppose, there was a book uh, written in the middle of the 19th century. You're probably familiar with it. I can't remember the author. It's called Peruvian Antiquities. And there's a sketch in that book that shows a human fetus with a huge elongated skull, which, would again, is suggesting that some of them may have been born that way. That's right, yeah. So, and that's the interesting thing. Uh, in our book, uh, with Brian Forster, the Enigma of Cranial Deformation, we have some color photos of a very unusual head, a skull, which has a different fusing of the plates, and it's not a normal, um, you know, uh, you have different plates in your head, and, and when you're a baby, they don't, they haven't fused yet, but as, as you become more, as you grow up, they, they do fuse together. But you have these, you have certain plates in your head, but these elongated skulls don't have that same plate pattern that, that normal humans would have. So they may well be some different species of person or, or even possibly extraterrestrials. Well, listen, David, uh, we could go on for hours and would love to, and uh, we'll, perhaps we can pick it up at another point uh, down the road and, and talk further about the, uh, these uh, cranial deformations. I appreciate your time tonight, and again, uh, we look forward to two new books, Ancient Technology in Peru and Bolivia and The Enigma of Cranial Deformation, and we'll look forward to seeing you here in Toronto, June 29th, and uh, folks can get tickets at conspiracyculture.com. Thank you, David. Thank you, Richard. All the best. Bye-bye.
You too. Bye. David Hatcher Childers, always full value. Uh, difficult guy to get on the show because, as I say, he's always traveling uh, uh, around the globe. Uh, and if you get a chance to see him in person, please do so. Again, coming to Toronto, June the 29th, as part of Conspir- uh, Conspiracy Culture's presentation, uh, George Norrie, David Hatcher Childers, Richard Dolan, uh, Alex Jones. Uh, so log on to conspiracyculture.com. And you can order your tickets through there. I might even see you there as well. All right. Uh, just a few moments left in the program. A couple of things I want to share with you. First of all, here's a story I posted uh, at richardserrett.com. This is fascinating. The discovery of preserved mammoth blood could soon make it possible to clone a live specimen. You heard me correctly. Scientists are attempting to bring back the woolly mammoth from extinction, and they now have uh, much to celebrate, it would seem, the remarkably well-preserved remains of an adult mammoth discovered in Siberia have been found to contain actual blood and muscle tissue. Researchers excavating the body came across the the, uh, blood in ice cavities below the animal where it appears to have been maintained in a liquid state despite the freezing temperatures. Samples of the blood and tissue have now been collected and sent for analysis in a laboratory, uh, quote, when we broke the ice beneath her stomach, the blood flowed out from there. It was very dark, said expedition leader Semyon Grigoriev. This is the most astonishing case in my entire life. How was it possible for it to remain in liquid form? And the muscle tissue is also red, the color of fresh meat. So you're, there you go, the, the Jurassic Park dream of cloning long-dead animals from their genetic remains may have taken a giant step closer to reality. Let's hope they don't get the same idea with a velociraptor. That's the last thing we need, one of those things uh, loose on the streets of Toronto or New York or what have you. Uh, Last week on the program, I played a clip that someone sent me uh, from uh, Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon. This was an interview he gave uh, back in 2009 after he released a book entitled The Magnificent Desolation. And he says a couple of things here that have some people wondering whether he's sort of admitting, trying to admit that the Apollo 11 moon mission was a hoax. Have a listen. He writes about his experience in an autobiography called Magnificent Desolation. All three of us decided not to participate in the uh, Apollo uh, 11. Why would we go there? You just get overawed. You set up a, a series of expectations, and <laughs> you're, you're bound to get disappointed one way or the other. I thrived on addictive substances, uh, alcoholism, and clearly that began to predominate in my unstructured life. It sounds like it may have been more difficult just to plan one human life than it was to plan that mission to the moon, at least for you. Well, yeah, it, it certainly was. What a bodacious challenge confronting people on Earth. We were obsessed with doing the best that we possibly could so that we wouldn't trip over the wire that goes out to the TV camera that's recording all that we're doing. That's Buzz Aldrin, whose new book is called Magnificent Desolation. That last part in particular, we were, you know, trying desperately not to trip over the wire leading to the television camera. Doesn't that sound like he's admitting as many (laughs) conspiracy theorists have have uh, presumed that uh, the Apollo 11 lunar landing was uh, lunar landing was a hoax and it was shot on some soundstage, uh, a la Capricorn One, with O.J. Simpson and Hal Holbrook. Now, 
I'm playing this again because uh, I want to get your feedback on this. And I'd love to hear either on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, or through email. And you can email me through the website, richardserrett.com, richard at richardserrett.com. I'd love to get your feedback on this. Let me know what you think. You've heard the clip from Buzz Aldrin, and there are a couple of instances in that clip in which he appears to be, or what it sounds like he's saying is, the lunar landing was a hoax. But you tell me. Maybe I'm reading more into that. And maybe what I'll do also is I'll figure out a way I'll post that clip on Twitter. I'll send that out as a Twitter, and then you can listen to it and respond. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, or email me through the website, www.richardserrett, that's S-Y-R-E-T-T dot com. Back next week with Stephen Bassett, Victor Vigiani, and the mystery man who was sort of funding, helping to fund, in part, the citizens' hearing on disclosure. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.